Turn to 1 Samuel chapter 4. Or you can probably see it on the screen, I hope. Um, we're going to be maybe jumping around a little bit in Scripture. Some things I want to show you about this. But first, I'll read this text to you. This is 1 Samuel 4. Um, and then we'll, we'll jump in. But first, let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this time. I thank you for uh, bringing us here. And I thank you that you're active in our lives and that you want to speak through your scripture and speak through the word. Lord, we, we know this is important and we know that you speak and we need to hear from you. That saying, that great line in the Bible that says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Lord, I pray that as we go through this together, as we learn about this together, as we dissect this together, I pray that you would renew our hearts, renew our minds, give us great, great insight into what you're saying. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Let me read the chapter and then we'll jump in. Um, and the word of Samuel came to all of Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew, drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the battlefield. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord uh, from Shiloh here, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who was enthroned on the cherubim, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas. I almost want to say Hophni and Phinehas. They were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. And as soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has, has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Well, they don't have their theology exactly straight, but good enough take courage and be men O Philistines lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you be men and fight so the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated and they fled every man to his home and there was a great slaughter for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell and the ark of God was captured and the two sons of Eli Hophni and Phinehas died a man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh that same day with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the, all the city cried out. And when Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, what is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old and his eyes were set so that he could not see. So now he's, he's completely blind. And the man said to Eli, I am he 
who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, how did it go, my son? And he who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines. And there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backwards from his seat by the side of the gate and his neck was broken and he died for the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel for 40 years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant and about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the, that the ark of God was captured, that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed down and gave birth for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the woman attending her said to her, don't be afraid for you have born a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod saying, the glory, the weight has departed from Israel because the ark of God had been captured and because her father-in-law and her husband um, have died. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. Um, so this passage is all about judgment. That's what we're talking about today. This is judgment day. This is a judgment day. Things have finally gotten so bad in Israel that at the perfect time, at the right timing, God is now deciding to act in these geopolitical events, particularly in this devastating battle of Aphek. This is the battle of Aphek against the Philistines. And this is a devastating act of God against, the ch against his own people, against the children of God, against Israel. This is an act of... of um, brutal judgment and an act of fulfilled prophecy uh, back in chapter 2 a man of God appeared to Eli and warned his warned him your leadership is so bad that I'm going to come against your house and then in chapter 3 when God called Samuel God told Samuel the first words he told to Samuel was there's a day coming one day in which I'm going to fulfill everything I said against Eli and against his house this is about God taking out a leadership structure that is pulling down the entire nation. Um, judgment is a funny thing. This is something that's extremely uncomfortable to talk about. And I think extremely uncomfortable to talk about when it's in relation to God's own children. We tend to think, you know, God doesn't punish his own children. I've heard that lots of times. I've heard that preached. God does not punish his own children. And I think to myself, what Bible are you reading? It's... it's all over the place, God's judgment towards his kids. Um, and therefore, instead of uh, retreating against it, instead of shying away from it, let's look at it and let's see what it's all about. We're going to learn, I think, at least three things today. One, we're going to learn that God's judgment is dreadful. It's horrible. It's painful. Something worth avoiding. I think we can all agree. Something worth avoiding, okay? Secondly, we're going to see, though, that God's judgment is corrective. It is disciplinary. Okay? It's corrective. As terrible and as horrible and as wretched as it is, it is a corrective judgment. And thirdly, we're going to see that it is redemptive, that it is hopeful, that it's redemptive, that it's gracious. Okay? So those are the three things that we're going to, that we'll get through 
today. First of all, it's dreadful. I, I want you to know that this is a, this is a historic moment in the, in the lives of, of the Israelites that will go on in infamy. This is not just one of many battles that they lost. Their attitude is not, well, we lost a battle, but we'll win the war. This is effectively, for them, in their perspective and in their time, this is, we're done as a nation. We've lost. These Philistines have taken over completely. They've won. And not only that, you can see in their minds, they're, drawing, they're able to draw a straight line to God has left. We've, we, we're beyond his help. This is devastating not just nationally, it's devastating spiritually. It, to them, it represented much more than a national crisis. It represented a spiritual abandonment. Look at the end. She says, I'm going to name my kid as I'm dying. I'm going to name my kid Ichabod, which means the glory is gone, or it's actually a pretty um, controversial translation. It either could mean a statement, the glory of God has departed, or it could mean a question, where has the glory gone? Where is the glory? Either way, you get the point. God has left. We, he's abandoned us. He's gone against us. This is hopelessness in their, in their point of view. It's an extremely painful time. The Philistines, um, you need to, uh, let me give you a little bit of background about the Philistines. They are one of three of the Old Testament's enemies against Israel that are the most stubborn. Um, you've got the Egyptians, you've got the Philistines, you've got the Babylonians. And yes, there were others that came against Israel and defeated them. We've got Assyria, and they, those played a big, uh, uh, they played a big role. But in terms of the big theological themes that, that the Bible focuses on around enemies, the Philistines are huge. They are a constant, constant oppressive um, force. And at this point in history, they have completely oppressed Israel. Even before this battle, Israel at best are... Um, residents paying, paying tribute and paying homage to their landlords, the Philistines. The Philistines have outnumbered them. They have much superior weaponry. They have um, uh, superior technology for their culture, for their building systems. And part of the reason is that they're situated right on the coast of the Mediterranean. So they had, they had access to a lot of exports from across the sea. They could get um, things like swords, those types of things, um, Israel, if you, you, you keep reading in some of these battles, they're using pitchforks. They're using sticks. They're, they're throwing rocks at the Philistines. The Philistines have actual swords, bows and arrows, those types of things. They're much more militarily advanced because, partly because of their geographical situation. They're barring, they're cutting Israel off from trade, from getting some of those resources for themselves. Later, when you'll see that Saul and um, King Saul and his son Jonathan, they have, it's a big deal, the text marks it out, that they got themselves swords to lead the battle. So you're seeing like technology's increasing as the, king, as the kingdom comes forward. But also this is a major transitionary battle. This transitions in, in history, the end of the judges era, the era of the judges with Eli, and this marks a transitionary period with Samuel into the monarchy into, um, we're looking at the Davidic, we're going to start going into the Davidic kingdom through Saul and through David and going on from there. It's a big moment. And the battle of Aphek really hits a decisive victory against this corrupt 
temple system or tabernacle system loosely based on the law of Moses, but, not, but corrupt as all get out. So the defeat is horrible. I mean, imagine this from their perspective. 3,000 people die. 30,000 people die. People are running in all directions. Um, the Ark of the Covenant has been captured. Your leadership structure has just been killed in one foul swoop, in one, in one day. I mean, imagine if that was here in America. You know, movies have been made off of scenarios just like this, hypothetical scenarios just like this. What if the White House was bombed and we were invaded and we lost all of our weapon systems? And, it, you know, a lot of people would be thinking, okay, God has abandoned us. This is it. I mean, how many bloggers would, say, would be saying, Christian bloggers would be saying, God's, God's punishing us. Well, here, they're, the elders here of Israel, they're able to at least say, in verse 3, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Uh, let me ask you a question. Are they right? Is this the Lord defeating them? And the reason I'm asking this is because this gets into the nature of judgment. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, right. So what you're, what you're basically saying is yes and no. In a certain, in a certain, and I would agree with you. That's what I was going to say. In a certain degree, this is the consequences of their own actions. They've been warned and they've been warned and they've been warned and they've been warned were there. But it's not just that. If we stop there, that would be a problem. This is God, in fact, and we know this because of chapter 2 and chapter 3, God saying, I'm bringing about something that the ears are going to tingle. In other words, I'm in this also. So there's an, there's an amalgam of judgment. When we think of, typically when we think of the term judgment, we think of a unilateral move, um, completely, uh, you know, um, God has the complete agency in this. Right? We usually think of God's complete agency to unilaterally move and punish someone that he doesn't like or to, uh, to be done with somebody. We think of hell, we think of wrath, we think of judgment and all of those things. But the Bible presents a much more nuanced situation than that. It is a both and. We, we know that God has been putting up with this for an extremely long time. And uh, he uses our own momentum, he uses our own disobedience to, in a sense, punish us. I mean, you know, I know it's been popular the last couple of decades in the psychology world to say, don't punish your children. They'll, they'll, they'll work it out in the end. That's silly. Any parent that's been parenting for more than, I don't know, a few years knows that that's silly. There are certain things that kids don't grow out of. There are certain things that kids grow into unless you act, unless you move and act on their, on their behalf. So judgment, yes, this is in a sense a punishment, but it's a corrective punishment. It is painful, it's devastating, it's hurtful, it is severe, it is severe, no question about it. But the severity is needed. This le a, a slap on the hand wasn't gonna do it for Israel at this point. You know, God has tried so many things through prophecy, 
through a 12-year-old little boy named Samuel. God sent a man of God first. Eli did nothing. God raised up a 12-year-old mentee to tell his mentor, hey, this is going to happen. Still nothing. And here it comes. The day happens where finally at some point every parent says, okay, that's enough. I'm done. Here it comes. And there's no negotiating at this point, right? (laughs) Parents, woot, woot, absolutely. There's a point where with Noble, I'll negotiate, 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 but then there's a point where negotiations are over. This is just going to happen. And I'll say to Noble, you might as well not even ask me anymore. I think of that chilling verse in Isaiah. No, no, it's Jeremiah, where God says to Jeremiah, I have one command for you, Jeremiah. Jeremiah says what? And he says, stop praying for these people because I'm not going to listen. It's It's coming. What? He says to Jeremiah, stop praying for these people that I'm not going to judge them because I am. In other words, you might as well stop asking, Jeremiah, because it's coming. I'm going to punish these people. There's a point where that comes. We like to think that God will not punish his children, but he does because he loves them. And sometimes that is, it's intentional. It is, um, it is exacting, but it is severe all the same. And just like with Noble, he always thinks my punishment is too much. Every, every, every child thinks it's too much. There's, I, don't, I don't think I've ever met a kid that's been punished by their parents that said, that, that's about right. Good job, Dad. That's perfect. Not too much, not too little. Man, I appreciate that. Every, you know when you're, parents, you know when you're doing it right, in a sense, when they're like, oh, it's too much. Okay, I'll do anything. Stop, right? That's the idea. This is extremely severe, But God has been so patient up to this point and now he's like, no, this is it. I've got to do something for the sake of my people. Now look at their responses. The elders, they're able to say, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? And here's here's their answer. Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant to the Lord here from Shiloh that it, not he, that it may come among us and save, from the, save us from the power of our enemies. So this is either some attempt, I don't know what their motive is, but I, it's got to be one of two things. Either it's their motive to try to manipulate God to get him to act on their behalf, even though this is, I, I mean, they've already acknowledged that God is in this somehow. God is coming against us. I know what we'll do. Will send his precious ark where he dwells. His pre- the ark represented the presence of God, his presence. We'll send that out there, and either it will manipulate him or we'll route around God. We'll just do this without God, and this will be a rallying cry for the people. And we don't need God. We'll just, we'll just manipulate the people to rally around this mascot to go out and defeat these enemies. We need a morale booster. It reminds me of when the Mariners rehired um, Ken Griffey Jr., but that's a whole other story that ends in almost the same way, actually. Defeat. <laughs> uh, you know, we, they, we rally around a, an icon, but this goes to show that we need more than that. If God is, you know, if God is for us, who can be against us? But if he's, if he's, a, if he's against us, there's, this, there's nothing we can do. Um, So the people sent to Shiloh and they brought there the Ark of the Covenant. Now here's what they're missing. Notice they say, bring the Ark of 
the covenant. What covenant are they referring to here? Anybody remember? There's only one at this point, really, that, that, that they're following. Yeah, at Moses, at Mount Sinai, they cut covenant with Moses. So here's what's interesting. They call this the Ark of the Covenant, but they clearly have no idea or they've forgotten what the covenant actually says. Uh, let me show you. Moses, when, one of his last speeches before he goes into the promised land, he reiterates the covenant in Deuteronomy 28. Look what it says. If you faithfully, if you faithfully, if you faithfully obey the word of the Lord, your God, being careful to do all of the commandments that... Um, uh, did I just go? If you obey the voice of the Lord your God, blessed shall you be in the city, blessed shall you be in the field, blessed shall you be, shall be the fruit of your room, um, blessed shall be the fruit of your ground and the fruit of your cattle and increase uh, your herds. Um, the Lord will cause your enemies to rise against you to defeat you. Uh, or to be defeated before you, excuse me. They shall come out against you one way and they'll flee seven ways before you. But look down here. But if you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful, this is the covenant. This is the covenant that the ark represents. If you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God and be careful to do all of his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall be the city. Curse shall be you in the field. Curse shall be the basket in your kneading bowl. And look down here. Um, the Lord will send curses. And down here, the Lord will cause you to be defeated by your enemies. You shall go out. This is Aphek. You shall go out in one way, and against them you will flee in seven ways. It's the battle of Aphek right there. They went out against the Philistines, and they ran in several different directions. They all went to their houses. They fled. You shall be a horror to the kingdoms of the earth, and your dead body shall be food for all the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. That's a battle. There shall, and there shall be no one to frighten them away. This is the Ark of the Covenant. This is what it represents. And they're thinking that this will magically save them. But the fact remains, this is the agreement that they agreed to. When they cut covenant with God, they said, yes, this is what we, we, we agreed to. If we want to stay in your graces. Now, what has that gone away? Well, with Jesus. Does Jesus take, take that away? Well, yes and no. Um. Well, let me show you. Oh, I was, I was close. Um, he says, down here in verse 7, do not be deceived. Who is he talking to here, by the way? Who is Galatians written to? Christians or non-Christians? Christians, yep. Um, be not, do not, don't be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For, what one who, for the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us, now, let us not grow weary of doing good, because in due season we will reap if we do, if we do, not, if we do not give up. So then... As we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those of the household of faith. It seems pretty clear to me. In other words, when, when it comes to God and when it comes to Christianity, you are always, um, so 
When we become Christians, we are accepted in the beloved. We have imputed righteousness to us, right? That means that we are declared forensically. It's a status word. It means that we are given the status of being righteous, right? But we are not always approved of by God. You know what I'm saying? It's just like any covenant, any relationship. So, for example, let me go back to the whole child thing. Noble is in my family. He will always be. He will always be accepted in my family forever, no matter what, unconditionally, without regard to the merit of noble. He, will, he doesn't have to earn being a manje. He doesn't have to earn being my son. I love him no matter what. But there are certain things that he can do that will, put, that will interfere with our intimacy, with our, um, I, I will not approve of everything he does. Guaranteed, right? Um, it, you know, I, I had a friend who had a, I had a friend who had a son that was um, deeply involved in heroin addiction. And he said to this son, I love you. I will always love you. Nothing will ever change that. But I can't bring your mom over to your house and hang out with you. I can't, there's certain things we can't do. I can't have you come and live here because you're stealing my stuff or you're, you're going out and doing these other things. Like your, your choices are running interference between me and you. I'll always love you. That will never change. But we can't enjoy the close proximity of fellowship that we would have enjoyed if, this, if you had made better choices, see. And so for your own good, I'm going to act. I'm going to do something here. And for the good of the family. We're always accepted before God. Always. As Christians. But sometimes he acts. And this is how it's always been. Let me, sh- let me show you this. Um, do you remember Deuteronomy 1? These are the words that Moses spoke to all of Israel beyond the Jordan in the wilderness. Um, so he says... See, I have set before you, I've, I've set the land before you. They're, they're at a place called Kadesh Barnea. And God says, go in, take possession of the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give to them and their offspring. Go get the land. Get in there. I've given it to you. It's yours. Do they do that? Well, instead, they send some spies in. Um, He says, then all of you came near and said, let us send men before us that they may explore the land. This seemed good to me. It's practical, of course. Why would they send spies in the land? Because they'd never been there. It's the first time they've they've been in Egypt for the past 400 years. They don't know what they're getting into. So it's reasonable. Let's go in and see what's there. Um, And they took in their hands some of the fruit of the land. They brought it down to us and brought us the word again. It's a good land that the Lord is giving to us. Yet you would not go up but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. And you murmured in your tents and said because the Lord hated us and brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the land of the Amorites to destroy us. But then I said to you, do not be in dread or afraid of them. The Lord your God who goes before you himself will fight for you, just as he did for you in Egypt. Remember what he did for you in Egypt, before your eyes, and in the wilderness, where you have, uh, where you have seen the Lord your God carried with you as a man carries a son. He carried you out as a man carries a son. All the way you went to this place. Yet in spite of this word, you did not believe, you didn't trust 
the Lord your God. Really important. And the Lord heard your words and he was angry. And this is it. This is another one of those moments. He's had enough. Look at He's angry and he says, the Lord said, said uh, I heard your words. I swore not one of these men of this evil generation will see the good land that I swore to give your fathers. It's punishment. This is judgment. Okay, you're not going in. You're not going in. And look what happens. Um, somewhere in here. Somewhere in here they say, oh no, we've blown it. Uh, oh, here it is. Look at we have, uh, oops, we have sinned. Uh, I just missed it. Oh, then you answered, we have sinned against the Lord. We ourselves will go up and fight. So there's this fight against the Amorites. And they say, oh, never mind. Now we'll go in and we'll, and we'll, we'll go in and fight. And the Lord says, don't bother. Oh, sorry, this is so powerful. You click, you barely, you sneeze on this program and I'm telling you all this information comes up. It's, it's incredible. But um, they say, okay, well now we're sorry. We're, we're sorry about that. Come with us. And he says, what does he say? Uh-uh. I'm done. I'm done now. Here's another one. Scary one. Hebrews 12. Um, remember this? Therefore, lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint or out of head. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fa uh, fails to obtain... That is language to failing to enter into God's rest. See that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, um, and by it you become defiled. Here we go. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he was, fa he was found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. In other words, he sold his birthright. You remember the story. He sold his birthright to Jacob. People say Jacob stole his birthright. No, that's not true. Esau sold, he, Esau agreed to this. But then afterwards, he apparently, according to the author of Hebrews, he was sorry about it and said, never mind, and it was too late. You can't undo it. There are certain things that you can't undo. Now, let me ask you this. Does this mean that God hated Esau? No. He blessed him. He made him a great nation. He blessed him incredibly well. When you go to Romans chapter 9 and you, re you read about who Edom became and who Israel became, Edom became this horrible, horrible, horrible nation. And God said, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. In this, in this particular case, in Romans chapter 9, the word loved and hated is talking about nationally this nation, Edom, that became this vile, wicked, disgusting people so Jacob, or Esau, I hated. Edom, I hated. Jacob, I loved. Here's the thing. What kind of nation did Israel become? A vile, disgusting, horrible, sick people. The question is not, why does God hate Esau or Edom? The question in Romans 9 is, why does God love Israel? 
They're just as bad. In fact, maybe even worse they become. No, God loves, he, he blesses Esau. Let's go back to Deuteronomy. Did God, so they, they didn't go into the land. He says, I'm, you're not getting into the land, but did he treat them? Did he, is this judgment to where he just squashes them and they die? No, look at it. The whole commandment that I command to you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go and to possess the land that the Lord swore to give. And you should, so he's talking now to a new generation. And you should remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. Remember, he says, you're not going into the land. They're right there at Kadesh Barnea, at the, at the southern border of the, of the Holy Land. And because they come out and they don't believe and they grumble against God, God says, I've had it, you're done. And he makes them stay in the wilderness for 40 years. And is he punishing them and is he out of wrath and anger and killing them? No. Look at what he does here. It says, these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you, it's corrective, testing you that you may know in your heart whether you would keep his commandments or not. He humbled you. And let you hunger, and, but he fed you with manna. These 40 years, God took care of them. Um, what else? Uh, he gave them bread. Your clothing did not wear out, nor, nor did your feet swell these 40 years. There's another passage that says your, 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 um, there's another passage that says your shoes didn't wear out. So in other words, God judged them, but he took care of his people all that time. Yeah. But they still, they still because they didn't have yes. Right. He gave, them he gave them pheasants, yeah, until it was coming out of their noses. Right? Yeah, they're still grumbling. They've still got all these issues going on. And so this is, so judgment is, is corrective. Now there is a judgment that is final. A wrathful judgment. Yeah. Deuteronomy 8. Deuteronomy 8. Deuteronomy 1 and Deuteronomy 8 tell the story, and you can find the parallel in, in Numbers 14, Numbers 13 and 14 as well. Yep. <clears throat> Judgment. It's corrective for, uh, for, for those that are in the family of God. Now, how, why, why is it? Well, look at this. This will be my... Let's see if I can show you this here. Let's go back to our text. The Ark of the Covenant. What is the covenant? What's the final? Well, let me go back to the... Let me go back to there. So, they bring out the Ark of the Covenant, not realizing or not remembering that the covenant that they agreed to says when they disobey other nations, God would use other nations to come in to scatter them. And if you keep reading, so that's exactly what's happening, but one thing does not happen. If you keep reading, it says in verse 36, the Lord will bring you and your king whom you set over, the, uh, over you to a nation that you and nor your fathers have known. What is this? What is this? There's one word that this, one word describes this. This is, the fi- this is the final judgment, being cast out of the land, being cast out of God's presence. It's the word exile, right? We've seen this over and over and over again. We've seen this in the Garden of Eden. What, in fact, it is the metaphor that the Bible uses in the Garden of Eden for death, to be cast out of God's presence. Remember, we've talked about this, 
movement in the Old Testament, the further east that God sends, the more death and decay and those things happen psychologically, physically, in the universe. And the more west that we move into God's presence, the more health, healing, love. So there's this idea. So you could really say the plot of the Old Testament is God making a way for his people to dwell with him again, in his presence again. Genesis chapter 2, in the very beginning, you see man and God dwelling in Sabbath day worshipful rest. They're walking in the cool of the day. There's no breach at all between mankind and God, and everything is well. They're on mission. They're doing good work. And then they fail. They take matters. Eve, she decides, Adam and Eve, they decide, we'll decide what's right, true, good, and beautiful, not you, God, apart from God. And because of that, the consequence is death. But what does he tell them to do? You've got to leave. You must, he ejects them out. And then in chapter four, Cain kills Abel and Cain is sent further east, further away from God's presence. So there's this idea, how can a a people sinful people like you and me how can we dwell in God's presence again remember he bars the garden of Eden with two cherubim with flaming swords remember the tabernacle we just read what's what's the lid of the ark of the covenant it's guarded by two cherubim on either side the uh, the tabernacle itself is is decorated like a garden And they make this movement weekly and monthly and annually back into God's presence through vicarious sacrifice. And when you sin, you're you're cast out. That's the representation of the scapegoat. The scapegoat is cast out on behalf of the people. So we've seen this. They're cast out. They go to Egypt. They're cast out of, and eventually they'll go to Babylon. We know that that's going to happen. They'll be cast out to Babylon. They'll come back, but they'll be ruled by Rome, which will be like a, still like an exile to the people. Except here, you see these horrible things happening. God's had it, but is he done? Look at this. Who leaves the land in our text in Samuel? Anybody see it? Who ends up leaving the land? Huh? Sure, but who ends up leaving the promised land? Was it the people? Nope, they stayed. Yahweh leaves. Look at down here. The glory has departed from Israel. That would be the last verse, verse 22. The glory has departed from Israel, not the Israelites. You see what's going on here? It's a judgment of hope. It's a judgment of redemption. Yahweh takes on the covenant curse, the full brunt of it. He leaves. And, by the way, what happens? Does this sound familiar? Yahweh leaves. He goes into the Philistines. and what, He goes into enemy territory, and what does he do? He defeats them. And then he comes back. You could say he resurrects. What happened to Jesus on the cross? 
On the cross, he was exiled out of the camp. He left. No, no, you're, you're, on, you're on the right track. He, he left. The Bible says he went and he defeated cosmic powers. He went into the enemy camp through his death, defeated cosmic powers, and he rose again. How do we know that our judgment is just corrective and not God being done with us completely? Because of the cross. That's how. So anything that happens to you, which it will in this world, you will be, you'll go through all sorts of different things. And at best, you can know that the judgment that's coming upon you is corrective. But you can know what it certainly is not if you're a child of God. It is not that he's done with you. It is not that he's thrown you out. He took the full measure of the covenant curse upon himself. Here Yahweh does that. Yahweh leaves. Yeah. Right. There's no opportunity for reconciliation. Right. Yeah, right. Right. And if, if, if God canceled us, gosh, our culture would be an uproar. And wouldn't it Yeah. Christians are... That yes. And Christi- Christianity is exclusive. And oh, he just sends... That's what judgment is. He just sends people to hell and all of these types of things. No. He went, the, he, he went to the greatest lengths to never cancel you, to just correct you. Severely, yes, severely, absolutely, but correctively, but with redemption and with hope. And why did he do it? Well, I have to point this out, there is, because I'd be really bad. Um, it just would be wrong if I did not. Look up here. Um, Eli fell over backwards from his seat from the gate, his neck was broken and he died, for the man was heavy, was old and heavy. The word heavy and the word glory are the same Hebrew, same Hebrew root word, kabod. It's a, it's a Hebrew play on words. How did Eli get so heavy? Do you remember? What's that? He's taken meat. Which belonged to who? No, it belonged to God. It belonged to God. He was taking, so what does glory mean? It means weightiness. It means import. It means what's important. You know, when someone that you um, admire comes into the room, you give them um, weight. You know, we, we even use that expression, don't we? Their words carry more weight. Right? That's the idea. Their words carry weight. In other words, they are more in, they're more important. That's the idea. Eli became heavy because he considered himself to be more important than God. That's the idea here. He took the glory that belonged to God. That's why the meat, taking the meat and skimming the meat was much more than just that. It came from a motive of I'm more important. My kids are more important. My dynasty is more important. Everything, it's idolatry. These things are way more important than God. That's why, um, I can't remember who it was, but someone said that we, we, we don't have a, um, necessarily a sin problem, that we do a glory problem. 
And what they meant was we, the reason we have a sin problem or sin comes from a misassignment of glory. We're, we're assigning weight to something or import to something over and above the import and the weight and the glory and the weightiness of God himself. And when we do that, we're all out of whack. And here, it was enough. Eli was so heavy from all of this taking from God that it threw him off of his balance and he fell and he literally, it, it was his, taking the glory of God was his undoing. Taking God's glory ended up being his ultimate undoing. He couldn't handle the, his, own, his own weight and it broke his, it broke his neck. Really interesting here. And here, so here God takes, he, he leaves the weightiness, the glory of God falls into the hands of the enemy where we will see in chapter five, God goes on a victory tour <laughs> in enemy territory. He just goes from one city to the other. These tumors break out on everybody. And every, you know, it becomes like Philistine hot potato. Well, we don't want it. And it goes to this other city, not us, and they, it goes to this other city. And it, he, the ark of God, in chapter 5, they set the ark of God in their temple, in the temple of Dagon. They come back in the morning, and Dagon is prostrate, worshiping God, worshiping Yahweh. They prop Dagon back up in his spot, strap him to the wall, and they come back the next day, and he's down, and his head's cut off, and his hands are cut off. Then this weird... Monkeypox starts growing all over everybody, or whatever it is. These tumors, and eventually they, eventually you know, they put the ark on a cart, and it this uh, mother cow, even without her, you know, they separate her from her young. She leads it back to the nation of Israel. It's the story of a of a death, um, cosmic powers being um, being defeated, and a resurrection by Yahweh Himself, and. Chapter 7, where, when the ark comes back, guess who else? Who's been, who is absent these next three chapters? Someone say Samuel. Samuel, that's right, Christine. Samuel is absent. Guess who comes back? So this old leadership is now dead. Yahweh leaves. He's exiled on behalf of the people. They stay. He's resurrected. And Samuel is back to being a leader in the narrative. A new leadership is born. A new um, a new people, a new Adam. It's, it's incredible, literally. The Bible, if anything, I want you to see this morning how intertwined the Bible is on itself. Isn't it fascinating? There is no other ancient book in the world. You don't have to be a Christian to believe this. Secular scholars will tell you there is no more complex, more interwoven, more more ancient writing in the world like, like the Old Testament, like the Bible. It's so interwoven. It goes backwards, it goes forward. It's revolving and repeating, but gaining mass every time the story revolves around, leading to Jesus exiling himself on our behalf so that we can know we will never be exiled from God's presence. The only way to handle judgment is with the only way to handle severe judgment is with severe assurance, right? The only way we, ha we we're Christians, we have that. I know that God is not casting me away from him when he judges me, when, when I suffer the consequences of my own problems, when 
uh, America falls apart or when the stock market crashes or when whatever it might happen, I can think, okay, a lot of things, but one thing I cannot, one conclusion as a Christian that I cannot have, it's not that God is done with me or canceling me. That's not what it is because Jesus, he, like Yahweh in our story, he left on the people's behalf. That's what the covenant was. According to the fine print of the document, of the covenant. They should have been the ones that left. But Yahweh does it. Another story is Genesis 15. You remember that story? When God cuts covenant with Abraham. And back how they would do it back then, they would take an animal, they would make an agreement, they would cut that sucker in half, and they would, they would walk hand in hand through the halves of an animal. And what they were saying was, this is what happened like if, if, if Craig bought my house, I would say, Craig, I'm going to cut a cow in two, and we're going to walk hand in hand through this cow, and that's basically going to say, if I don't give you my house, may my fate be the same as this cow, and if you don't give me the money for the house, may your fate be the same as this cow, and we're both holding hands, and we're saying, okay, right, my life's at stake here, this is, this is how we're doing a contract. God, Abraham comes to God in chapter 15 and says, how do I know what you're saying is true? How do I know you're going to give me an error? How do I know that my, my kids are going to bless the whole nation? How do I know? You've said all these things. How do I know that what, this, that what you're telling me is true here? How do I even know? And God says, okay, get some, I, I think it was a, I can't remember, but it was an animal. Cut it in half. Abraham would have known what he was going to do, but God causes Abraham to go into this deep sleep, and there he has this vision of this torch, this flame, this glory walking between this animal by himself. Basically, God saying, I'm gonna be faithful, and even if you aren't, I will incur the, the punishment. I will be, my fate will be like this animal. I will die, even when you're not faithful to your half of the bargain. This is the God we serve over and over again. Does he, and this, of course, lines up with this. Look at this, Exodus, let me show you this. So God, let me set this up. God rescues Israel from Egypt on eagle's wings. It's this beautiful speech. He brings them to Mount Sinai. He just parts the seas for them. And he brings them to Mount Sinai and he says to them, actually I think it's, he says to them, I've brought you out on eagle's wings I want to be your God and I want you to be my people. It's this beautiful romantic kind of language. It's not like a judge that says, okay, uh, sign here and I will do this and I will that. It's actually much more romantic. If you go back and read uh, chapter 18 and chapter 19, you'll see that God's saying, look, I brought you out on eagle's wings. I want to be your, pe- I want to be your God. I want you to be my people. Let's go back to Eden together. Let's, let's do this type of thing. And the people are so moved. They're like, yes, we just saw the, the seas part. You're so great. You're so wonderful. So they cut covenant. A, uh, Moses goes up to the mountain. He brings back the 10, he brings back the 10 uh, uh, you know, commandments, the Decalogue. Most scholars, most scholars will tell you it's like a wedding ceremony. God and his people got married. And what happens? When the people saw that Moses delayed in coming down from the mountain, this is the wedding night. The people gathered themselves together to Aaron and they said to him, get up, make us gods. Who shall go before us? And as, and as, 
as for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know where he, where he went. So, so Aaron said to them, okay, well, fine. Take off, take off the rings of gold and, 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 that are in your ears and of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and, and all of them. So all the people took off the rings of gold and the, in their ears, and he, received, um, and he received the gold from them, and he, uh, and he fashioned with it, with graven tools, a golden calf. And, they, and he said, they said, these are your gods, O Israel, whom you have come out of the land. So the Lord says to Moses, so Moses is up on the mountain, he's mediating for these people, and God says, interrupts and says, go down, your people whom you, <laughs> your people, <laughs> right? your son just did this. That's when, when Noble's naughty, that's what happens. Nicole says, your, your son just did this. Your people whom you brought up, out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves they've turned aside and the Lord said to Moses I have seen this people and behold it's a stiff-necked people now therefore let me alone that that my wrath may burn hot against them and that I may consume them in order that they may make a great I may make a great nation of you is God mad yeah super mad exactly Exactly. I've heard a lot of people preach, this is God testing Moses to see what he would do. It's nowhere in the text. That conclusion is nowhere in the text. The most straightforward reading is that God had every intention to do what he said. Now, you learn about who God is in the context of a story. Put yourself in his place. You just get married. You're at the altar. You've been dreaming about this moment your whole life. That person looks deeply into your eyes and makes these incredible vows and says, I will. And you do the same, I will. And you're whisked off on your honeymoon. And your spouse, or you say to your spouse, I'm just gonna go grab some things at the store. I'll be right back. And you're out for a bit, takes a little longer than you think, you end up going here and going there. And you come back to the hotel and you use your key code and you come back into the room and there is your brand new spouse sleeping with somebody else. Does that sentence make sense now? I have seen this people and behold, it's a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, leave me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation out of you. Would anybody blame the spouse for leaving that person at that moment? No. It would make complete sense. But look what happens. Moses implored the Lord and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought to the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? And look, here's what's interesting. Moses appeals to God's God's, um, reputation. Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and consume them? Why? Well, because if you've read Exodus up to this point, every plague, every time God does a plague on the Egyptians, he says, now the Egyptians will know. Now the Egyptians will know. In fact, the the theme of the book of Exodus is God revealing who he is by how he saves God revealing who he is by how he saves. In fact, in Exodus chapter 6, God says to Moses, um, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but I've never, I've never used the name Yahweh to those people before. 
which is confusing because in Genesis, you go back to the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and you see the name Yahweh all over it. The reason is because Moses wrote at Genesis and he put the name Yahweh in um, uh, reading backwards. Who, who is Genesis written to? Former Israelite slaves. He's telling the story and they know him now as Yahweh. But God did not reveal himself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob according to his own word to them as Yahweh. So the book of Exodus opens up with, who is he? Remember in chapter three, Moses, what does Moses say to, to, to them? Who should I tell him sent me? It's a big theme. It's repeated over and over again. Who should I tell him sent me? And he says, you know, I am that I am, Yahweh. I am being himself. I am the reality on which all the particulars are. I am God, right? We, and that's a huge thing in and of itself. But, but that's so abstract. Who is this God? What's he like? What does he do? He says, I will show you by how I will save. The book of Exodus is a theology of redemption. It's a theology of revealing Yahweh by how he saves, by a story. And that's what this is all about, that theme. So what, is, what, is, what does Pharaoh say? Moses goes to Pharaoh. Yahweh says, let my people go. What is, Pharaoh almost interrupts him and says, who? There's the theme again. Who is he? I've never heard of him. After every plague, God says, now the Egyptians will know. The Israelites, they're like, we don't know who this guy is. In chapter 15, by the time the Israelites are taken out, the Red Sea parts, you know the song, the song of the sea? They sing this song. It's great detail about who Yahweh is based on how he just saved. So the, the story starts out with Israel not knowing who he really is. It ends with them coming out of Egypt going, he's a mighty warrior. He's this, he's that. In other words, they have a lot better understanding now than they did in the beginning because of what he did. In other words, you cannot, this, is, this goes for us too, you cannot separate who Yahweh is from how he saves us. You can't annex those things. He reveals who he is to us by how he saves, not through some lesson. And the same is here. Who is he? We can say he's jealous. His anger is burning hot. And look, Moses, he gets the theme. He appeals to his reputation. Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent? In other words, you went to all this work to show the world who you are, and now they're going to say something different than who you are. Later, Chapters later, finally, Moses, uh, uh, God says to Moses, well, so Moses goes and sees it for himself, and look what he says. The next day, Moses said to the people, you have sin your sin is great. So Moses goes down and investigates. He sees what Aaron's done. He sees what the people, there's this horrible, nasty, debaucherized party going on, and Moses says, okay, yeah, it is bad, super bad. And uh, look, the Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom I have brought out of the land of Egypt to the land which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob, to your offspring, I will give it. I will send an angel before you and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, and the Perizzites, the Hivites. Go up to the land with milk and honey. Look it. But I will not go among you lest I consume you on the way because you're a stiff-necked people. So God goes, the needle moves a little bit. God says, fine, 
Go to the land, but I'm not coming. I'll get you in there, but that's it. I'm not coming because I'm so, he's, he just walked in on his wife, getting it on with somebody else. He sti- he, the same thing comes on, stiff-necked people. I'm not, I'm gonna consume them. I'm, God is hurt. And Moses says, basically, I'll just paraphrase, he says, no, 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 God, because the promised land is not the promised land unless you're there. That's not, the promised land is not the point. Remember, the point is that you would dwell with us and we would dwell with you. We wanna be married to you, God. Moses, by the way, being an intercessor, right? Look what happens. Moses intercedes. Moses said to the Lord, um, see you say to me, bring up this people, but, um, but you have not let, let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I, um, I know you by your, by your name and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me uh, now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you. So God moves again. I will give you rest. And he said to him, in your presence, uh, if your presence does not go with me, do not bring us there. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not, is it not your going with us so that, we, so that we are distinct? I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth. And the Lord said, this very thing that you have spoken I will do. Look at Why? I will do this for you, Moses. I will go with you. Why? For who? Who? Who found favor? Who's the you? It's Moses. I am going to have favor on the nation because you have found fa- I have found favor with you. I'm going to be gracious to others because of you. Does that remind you of anybody? God's saying, I'm going to forgive the world through Jesus. This intercessor, Hebrews, Hebrews tells us, right? And here we come to it. So through this story, this is all in the context of what? Golden calf worshipers. Walking in on your spouse on the wedding night. Being unfaithful. That's the context of this whole dialogue. And look, so now it comes to it. We answer the question, who is the Lord? The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord the Lord, who is he? A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving the iniquity of transgressions of sin. Who's he talking about? Golden calf worshipers. I'm, do you see what he's doing? I'm showing you who I am through a story. I want your heart connected here. See, I could have just skipped to, to chapter 34 and just read you this blurb. And sure, you would have been like, oh, that's so sweet. That's great. But it's, in the, it's a jewel in the snout of a story. You're supposed to feel how God feels to reveal who he is. Who is he? The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and steadfast love and faithfulness. It's chesed. 
which is steadfast love, keeping steadfast love, chesed, for thousands of generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Is it a 50-50? How how will he punish to the third and fourth generation? How will he forgive? Abounding in steadfast love, forgiving the iniquity and transgression of sin uh, for thousands. Oops. Darn it. So powerful. Abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping for thousands. He's gracious, but does he punish? Yes. Does he correct? Yes. I just did a, we just did a final paper with my students for the end of the year and on this verse, and mo- most of them stopped right here. They wrote their paper and commented a lot on this bit. And I wrote and read on their paper, keep reading, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers. He does punish. Is he forgiving? Yes, absolutely, to thousands. Does he punish correctively? Yes. That's 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 4. He is be, it's graciousness, redemption, and hope, and punishment all in one. The, the metaphor for water in the Bible is both punishment and self. Think of Noah. The waters of judgment come over the earth, but it's also the waters of salvation. Think back to uh, uh, Exodus. The children of Israel are saved through the waters of the Red Sea. Who is judged by those waters? Egypt. They're killed. It's wrapped up into one, see. We like to separate judgment and grace. But no, God uses that as an instrument to save through Jesus taking it on for himself, taking it on himself. Fascinating, isn't it? I told myself we would end early. Any questions, comments? How are you processing this? Um, in judgment day, so the Bible says that we will be judged, Christians, according to our deeds. Yes. It says it over and over again. You can't get away from it. You can't get away from it. It. Right. Right. Yes. We're saved. Absolutely. Saved by grace. Very true. Um, but at the same time, what we do matters. Absolutely, what we do matters. Uh, look at, um, let me show you, Romans 2, 12-ish. Uh, okay, down here. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, according to my gospel, God 
judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. That's, in other words, judgment is a part of the gospel. Part of Jesus' I mean, he's seated at the right hand of God. He will be judging. He said that at his final trial. Judgment is a huge part of his messianic role to play. Yes, right, I think of Ezekiel. And Ezekiel, he goes in there and God gives him a vision of, of inside the temple and he sees all these abominations, these horrible, horrible things. Yeah, absolutely. We, we have, I mean, and we live in a culture that begs for our attention, that begs us to store those other things, that begs us to give weight to those other things or to ourselves instead of God, the glory of God to fill the temple. So to the degree that we can, that we can uh, repent and give glory to God, to the weightiness of who he is, to that degree, more of his presence, more of his power is alive and available in our, in our lives. Um, you know, when it comes to, the, we're talking about sanctification. Um, when it comes to your justification, when it comes to your salvation, it's, it's unconditional. It's given without merit to, to who you are. But when it comes to your growth in Christ, there is a participation. We, we participate in that. Which is really hopeful. You know, a lot, a lot of times we, if, you know, we, we cry out to God, God, take this thing away, take this thing away. And he will stubbornly say, I want, I'm giving you the power to do that. I'm releasing the Holy Spirit so that you can have the power to work out your salvation in fear and trembling. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works that you should walk in them. Work, walk worthy of the vocation. I mean, it's over and over again. Our sanctification, we have a, it's empowered by Christ. It's not anything we can boast in. It's empowered by him. The Holy Spirit's alive in us. But if we don't walk in step with him, it's not like we're just gonna keep growing. We can stagnate. We can grieve the spirit. What we, what we sow, we will reap. What we reap, we will sow. What we sow, we reap. Yeah, that's right. 